0: Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new con gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlowaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is Hi
2: there, and welcome to my show, The Shift No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Today's special guest has worked in publishing for 20 years. A couple of years ago, she moved from print to audio and is currently executive editor and senior director at Audible. Over the course of her career, she has also worked as executive editor at Penguin Random House and Hyperion Books, senior editor at Simon and Schuster and two short stints on the agency side it's my pleasure to welcome Kerry Colin Carrie, it's so wonderful to get to speak to you again. I tell people all the time that it only takes one editor to change your life as a writer and you were that editor for me. For those of you who don't know, Kerry was the editor of my first novel, Hum If You Don't Know the Words, uh, and it was an absolute joy working
3: with her and that's why I wanted to chat with her today. Thank you for having me and thank you for those kind words. It does only take one person and I think it takes the right person because if it's the right person, then The vision comes to fruition and it becomes a a shared vision, which happened with
2: us. As a writer, you have to deal with so much rejection. And when you're in the vortex of that rejection, when you're out on submission, you do start to feel so despondent, and you think you're never gonna find someone who's going to love the book and who's going to bring it to market. And I had more than a hundred rejections for Hum, if you don't know the words, and then there was that one. Yes, from you. And it, as I said, was completely and utterly life-changing.
3: I was not the only one reader who loved your book before it went to market. Your book was immediately embraced by everybody in-house based on the read. It really was just so wonderful. And everybody loved it right away and immediately saw it. So I always find it fascinating to hear that there are hundreds of rejections of something before, before everybody at Penguin Random House loves it. So... How
2: many manuscripts would you be getting a week in terms of submissions?
3: On a slow week, it's very rare that you see none. I would say five or less on an extremely slow week. And then in a busier week, it could be anywhere from 10 to 15. You could really get a lot. On a, on a busy week, something just happens. You get a few every day.
2: My understanding is so few editors, I mean, they aren't able to read the submissions during the working day. So it's nighttime reading, on the subway reading, it's over the weekend reading. How would you prioritize which submissions you would look at straight away? Were there certain agents that you knew that if they submitted to you, you were going to love whatever they were pitching?
3: You will probably get a different answer about this from pretty much every editor. And I don't think that everybody will be 100% honest about this. I will be 100% honest with you. I read my submissions in the order in which they come in. That being said, if something goes wild and there's going to be an auction set or the agent comes back and tells me that they've gotten several reads and that if there's, you know, there's an industry term, if there's heat on something and I'm, I think I might lose it, then sure, I'll bump it to the top. Over time, you learn when to separate genuine heat from an agent following up. One tell, if they follow up exactly one week, it's usually a coincidence. Sometimes the squeaky wheel does get the grease if an agent continues to say, I haven't heard from you, I haven't heard from you. Or sometimes if there's another editor in-house at a another imprint because different editors from different imprints, but the same publishing house, which I realize is confusing, can receive the same submission. And if that happens and one of my colleagues were to be interested in the book, then I will bump it up so as not to keep my colleagues waiting if I want to make an offer. Would you read every submission from start to finish? I'm compulsive about the 50-page rule. I punish myself with this rule. I really sometimes just know that that it's not going to be a fit sometimes. I can tell right away. But sometimes you're wrong or sometimes I just think somebody's worked very hard on those, whether they be 150 pages or 200 pages or longer, that you owe them at least 50 pages to really understand where it goes. You've got to give, you know, if you're if you're making a determination on manuscripts based on writing, based on plot and character, those are things that you can't gauge. Um, not everything you can gauge until you're at least 50 pages in. So while I know I might not love the writing, something might surprise me in the plot or the character, and then maybe I might keep reading to see if there's something I can Switch about how the writing comes about. But the writing does tend to be one of those things that if you don't love it and you aren't a match to how it's reading on the page, then again, you're not the right fit.
2: If you got a submission and you immediately got excited about it, can you talk us through the whole process from the reading to acquisition? Because I was always under the impression that. An editor would read the book; they would love the book, and they then by themselves made this offer on the on the novel. And obviously, it's much more complicated than that.
3: I sort of also have a rule of when in doubt, be out. This is a very long relationship that you live for a lot, you know, that you live with for a really long time. It's almost like a, a relationship like any other. If you have doubts, it's probably not the perfect match. And that, those are doubts that I'm talking about that aren't, aren't editorial, that can be fixed, things that if you're just not sure about the market. What happens next is that we ha- you have a weekly editorial meeting. This is pretty standard for pretty much every single imprint and every single publishing house. Some, some do additional meetings in addition to an editorial meeting, but almost all have an editorial meeting, which is the entire editorial team. And then usually present are also people from subrights and foreign rights. There, um, at least one person from our marketing team, from our publicity team, our associate publisher and our publisher are there. So it's a room of colleagues And everybody goes around and talks about something that's in, whether they're on the fence about it and they want other reads or they're very excited about it. I think if they're on the fence for specific reasons, it's always helpful to articulate what those reasons are so that people know that they might be a good reader to address those specific concerns. For example, if I know that I love something on the page And that I love the story, but I just don't know if marketing would want to pay attention to it, then my marketing colleagues should read it and say so. A good editorial team, everybody brings a unique point of view. So sometimes if you're thinking about an editorial fix and wondering if it seems like it might be possible before you go to the author, if you're unsure about it you might ask one of your editorial colleagues and not a marketing or a publicity person. And the truth is you get all of the feedback plus what that person's expertise is once they read it. Most of the time, people raise their hand to read it for you and give you feedback. And sometimes you ask specific people to do so. And then they come back. And once they come back with feedback, assuming that it's positive and it's what you want to hear, and you've kind of talked about how you might consider marketing it, what types of publicity. And all this also goes into the valuation of it. Someone might say, this is a beautiful, beautiful story and its debut. So you might not, nothing is guaranteed, but a debut could certainly be on the cover of the book review and it could certainly get massive critical acclaim. It might not end up on the Today Show, but it could, it could be a pick for a book read and things like that. So these are bets that we never really know whether everything is going to hit or some are going to hit. But from that first set of reads, you get a sense it's somewhat of a microcosm of the larger reading population. Once we know that we want to buy it, we do have to run a PL, and l which is a profit and loss spreadsheet where we, you know, we look at how much it costs internally to, to publish something we, put in, we might put in budgets for marketing and publicity based on feedback, and then we try and come up with the right valuation for something based on how many copies we might think we can sell, and how do we do that? We look at comps. We look at things like, did this author go to a writing program where a lot of their colleagues might be able to give praise? Do those people have influence? What is the influential sphere around the writer? There are things that we can take for granted, and then there are things that we can hope for, and we sort of do a cost-benefit analysis based on all of these things, including the fact that we love the work. We run those numbers, and then you get a yes or a no, a thumbs up or a thumbs down from the publisher, and then you go and you make an offer. If there is an auction happening, then the agent is a little more in control of when and how the offer gets made. But the valuation system doesn't really change. And the process to get to that offer doesn't really change either.
2: And how long does it generally take? Because for an author waiting for an answer, I swear to God, time (laughs) slows down. uh, And it it feels like an eternity. But is there a a general time period?
3: From the expression of interest, as we say, from the time that I tell an agent, I love this and I'm going to bring it to my, my meeting, it could really be anywhere from a few days to a couple of weeks it shouldn't really take much longer than that and what that is is just basically that's just luck if i read it on a wednesday and love it on a wednesday i might not my meeting happens on a tuesday that's a week right there i know that there's somebody waiting and counting the days but that's sort of we have to abide by a process unless there's reason to speed that process up again if there's a competitive situation that's it that's a a time where we would jump a lot of these steps. A lot of times authors take silence for a negative when sometimes it really is that the editors just have been swamped and haven't gotten a chance. Sometimes it's a sign of a positive because they're preempting. I'll try and get a process started early and I think most editors do too. If I love something and I can go to the editorial meeting and say, I've already sent this around and people love it, you don't have to wait for an editorial meeting
2: I recall before you made an offer on my novel, we had a phone conversation and we chatted. Is that something that you do often?
3: I try to always have a conversation with the writer before, even if it's just to express passion and say, I don't have a single note, which I think it's important for both people to know that they're on the same page. Um, And I think that it's important, not just that I love it, but that the author understands why I love it, because the marketing of it and the messaging of it, so much of that happens is going to start with me. That if I love it for a reason that the author doesn't relate to, that can cause a lot of friction, even though it's a positive thing, but it can cause friction along the way, just in terms of copy and in terms of artwork and in terms of all kinds of things, in terms of targeting an audience so i really do try and make sure that there is a match personality wise and every editor works differently with authors too some editors like authors you were saying some authors really are get very upset about being edited either heavily or at all and some really want really crave edits and want to dive in with somebody else and with a second pair of eyes likewise editors are very different Not necessarily in whether they want to edit something, but in how they edit it. Some editors really don't want to see a manuscript before it's finished. Some want to see it in installments of chapters and things like that. And and that's important. For me, I don't have any hangups about that process because I am a very staunch believer in a comfortable and happy writer is going to result in the best book. And so for me, I'm able to adapt. But some editors do best when they have it a certain way. And I think those are important things for both parties to know ahead of time. What's
2: your advice to writers in terms of the writer-editor relationship? I'm sure you've had experiences with writers that have been absolutely wonderful. And then I'm sure you've also had experiences that were really tough for whatever reason, that, you know, someone wasn't listening to your editorial input or they didn't make their deadlines or whatever the case may be is. To an emerging writer who's hoping to get their work out there with an agent, with an editor at some point, what is your advice to, to those writers as they enter into that kind of relationship?
3: The same advice as any relationship, be communicative. I think that very often all kinds of relationships fall apart because there's misunderstanding that stems from a lack of communication or communication not done well, miscommunication. And what I mean by that is that sometimes authors feel, oh, I don't want my editor to think I'm difficult because then she won't prioritize my book and nobody's going to read it. So, I'm not going to tell her that I hate that jacket or I'm afraid to say, push back on that edit. Editors are happy to hear all of this. I think that most editors really enjoy the collaboration. It's not so much what it is that somebody is saying, so much as how they're saying it, you know? And I think it goes completely both ways. I think that one of the best skills that a good editor has are diplomacy and communication. So, if your job is to critique somebody's life work, you better know how to say that in a way that is not hurtful and that helps them to understand why it is helpful to their larger vision and mission. And I think that that goes both ways. I I say to authors all the time, if you don't like this, it's your name on that cover. So there are ways to advocate for yourself also without being quote unquote difficult, you know? And I think that saying, I hate these covers. What kind of hack did this? Is probably an example of the wrong way to communicate that you don't like something, or saying, "Wow, these are these are quite lovely. I can see that there's talent." However, I'm a little concerned. I was thinking of something more like this, and then constructive, and that's when sort of the relationship gets flipped, and the author becomes. The editor, which happens a lot. It happens with descriptive copy. It happens with art. So I think that just making sure that you're being heard because at the end of the day, it is your passion and your vision and your work, and it has your name on it. And just making sure that you understand that you are part of a relationship and part of a larger ecosystem. So respectful and clear communication, I think is key.
2: Something that surprised me with my first novel was there would be these periods of intense activity. It would be, I need you to get me this, this, and this, and I need it now. And then there would be months of complete and utter silence. And once you've published a novel, you expect that and you actually enjoy the months of silence because it means you can work on something else. But with your first book, you kind of get nervous. It's like, why am I not hearing from them? Why are things quiet? And there's a huge amount of time between when the book is acquired and when the book is slated to come out. It could be 18 to 24 months. It could be up to two years before the book comes out. Could you give us an indication of what you are busy with in those 18 to 24 months? What all is being done behind the scenes that the author is not seeing, but that you as the editor, you creating buzz, you generating interest? What What is that activity like?
3: Oh, there's so much activity going on. A lot of people are talking behind your back <laughs> in the best of ways. Um, we're planning a publication and it takes a lot. It's For a long time, the editor and the author are the people and the agent are the people who are really the most, they know the most about the work. They understand it really intimately. They can recite lines off of the top of their head. They can tell you what the characters look like off the top of their head. But there comes a time where that needs to be debuted. Debuting a book to the world happens twice. First, it happens to the inside world in the publishing house. And then that world, and it takes that whole world to then introduce it to the public and its readership and find the fans. And to really find fans and do a good job of that, you need to be able to identify audiences and how do we do that? So these are all very buzzwords and it's all very general, but what we're literally doing is creating a campaign. So we're having, I would say, once we have a finished manuscript That's when we send it out for reads. We'll make galleys as many months in advance as possible. We are putting together selling documents for our marketing team and for our salespeople. So we're putting together sales bullets. We're putting together key selling points about the book. We're putting together key selling points about the author. We are making decisions about how and where and when and to whom we will market and publicize, which publications might make the most sense, um, how we want to tier those and in what order. So first we'll go out to these people. And if these people don't respond in the way that we want them to, then we'll go to these people. And it's an extremely coordinated effort between the marketing and the publicity team and the sales team. And then there's also a timing issue. So We have to organize it on a publishing calendar, which does look like the regular calendar year. So, But everything goes into a season. So a lot of times, the first thing that you want to do is figure out when is the best time for this to be published. And a lot of times, an author might have thoughts about when their book should be published. And we certainly want to hear those. And that might be based on, as soon as possible, I've been working on this for 20 years, which is valid. But it also you've been working on it 20 years, make sure you get it right too. So another four months from when you might think it should be published is sometimes the better judgment call. And I think that that's what publishers are trying to do because they're also looking at the fact that if you're published by a house as big as the one that you were published by, where the people who are selling it into the booksellers and the people who are marketing it and promoting it, they need several months because they are working on dozens if not more titles at once we're trying to get all of them attention and in different ways so there's a lot of moving parts and if we think that there's too much competition in one space we'll try and space things out or if we think that things are going to be looked at similarly sometimes we get input from booksellers about a jacket and we need to go back and come up with new comps to show to the author for the jacket. Sometimes we get feedback where we say, we love this read, but we need more blurbs. Then I come back to the author and I say, okay, let's do blurb outreach. So the editor has a a bunch of paperwork that they have to do that then gets sent out to the other teams. And then the other teams go and do their work and they come back to us with questions and follow-up and homework. And a lot of that, when the editor comes to the author for help, is in response to that. So we're writing things like copy. We're writing things like press releases. We're putting together full marketing plans for each. We're having meetings. We're doing a lot of data work and audience work to find out subcategories of readers and where we can find them and where it might be best to put
0: rosettastone.com slash today that's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today are you looking for beta readers some of
2: whom might potentially become writing group members down the line Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000-word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. What can the author do in the meantime? Because these days, as authors, we are having to do a lot of promotion ourselves. It's no longer just up to the publisher to promote an author we are having to be active on social media we're having to engage with booksellers with our readers I have a website etc cetera, etc cetera. i know for me i will spend kind of 2 to 3 nights a week on zooms with book clubs That is stuff that's happening constantly that we are having to do to build an audience, especially when you're a debut author. Um, And these days, readers love reaching out to authors. They love how accessible they are. Do you ever suggest to writers perhaps that they do media training or that they do any kind of training? Because sometimes writers can be extremely introverted Um, they love the process of writing, but I know some writers who hate going on tour. They hate speaking in front of people. It's a huge issue for them. So is this ever something that you will try and identify early on so that they can start building up their confidence or or their skill in certain areas?
3: Absolutely. We always tell everybody to work on their social presence while there's downtime. It's sort of like a wedding or a Baby. Like there's, when you're waiting for the big moments, there are peaks of activity and then there's a lot of downtime where you're just sort of waiting and it feels interminable. And I think for a lot of authors, these are, these moments can be as big as those moments. These are those moments in their career as opposed to their personal life. And they're hugely important. And so the, I think every author, no matter how large their social presence, it can always be either bigger or more engaged, or more targeted based on what their book is. So it's possible that there are themes of the book that have nothing to do with anything they've talked about on social media. So they can start seeding that interest between their social presence and their fan base so that their fan base it doesn't feel like it's coming out of left field. That's something that an author can always be doing through photography, through other Isn't that's another way that we always tell people depending on what type of writing you're doing for novelists, sometimes it's getting a short story published or sometimes it's doing an editorial, which is a little bit of a different type of writing. Sometimes it's creating videos on whatever platform it might be. And sometimes it's creating a completely different presence that they didn't have before. Potentially they've exclusively been on Facebook and we feel like they really need to also be on Instagram or Twitter for one reason or another. We tell them to be reaching out to their colleagues in the writing community and meet other writers, reach out to booksellers, go to your local bookstores. These things seem really small, but as you've learned, you know, they really matter. These, are the, um, these are, will be your loudest evangelists in the coming months and year when, the, when it's time for the book to be published. Booksellers remember when you come in and say hi and introduce yourself, they will hand sell your books to customers looking when people are allowed to be in a bookstore again.
2: Booksellers are amazing. I was blown away by how one bookseller who loves you, who loves your book, what a difference they can make in terms of the hand selling. There's a bookseller in Toronto who I heard via other people, was hand-selling my novel to people who were coming in wanting to buy something else. And he would go, oh, no, you don't want to read that. You want to read this. And I went to the bookstore to go and see, and I actually saw him doing it. I caught him in action, and it was amazing. And to say thank you to him, I actually I said, what can I do to say thank you? And he said, you can name a character in your next book after my wife, which is exactly what I did. And now he sells the second book because his wife's name's in it. And and relationships with other authors is so important as well because the one thing that I really struggled with in the first, uh, with the first book was reaching out to authors for blurbs. I'm not someone who's able to ask for favors and to reach out to strangers to ask them to please find the time to read my book, to say nice things about it. I really struggled with that. And I found with the second book it's easier because by then – You've done events with other authors, you've gotten to know them, you've reached out, you've offered emotional support over bad reviews, or whatever the case may be is. So um, as an author waiting to get published, if you're able to build up those relationships, uh, I think it's super helpful for down the line.
3: From the beginning, the self-promotion piece is something they really need to do their best. That is the most work we can do within ourselves. And I tell every single writer get comfortable with it and get comfortable with it fast because if you want other people to sell your work you have to be able to sell yourself and it doesn't always have to be in this slick used car sales woman way that people think of you know it can be in a way that is humble it can be this is my life's work and it's special to me because and then for you, you had a personal connection to the story and the setting in the story. You had an origin story. Telling that origin story is as compelling of sales material as anything else I've ever heard. And so, I I encourage authors: don't just sell for the for the sake of the sale. Sell for the sake of the passion, and the rest will follow. It's the rejection all over again. And that's why the rejection also helps at the beginning when people reject the book itself. Is It prepares you for people who are blurbing it to either not like it or or say, I don't have time to read this. When in fact, that first round of rejections is way harder because it's a matter of it's happening or it's not. And they can be a lot harsher. Most people who aren't blurbing your book don't say, I'm not blurbing this because I don't like it. They're, blurbing, they're not blurbing it because they don't have time more often than not.
2: Well, and it prepares you for the the vicious professional reviews as well, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, we, we deal with quite a lot of that. Something that I'm seeing more and more in the industry, and I've been speaking to writers who've been writing for many, many years, and they're noticing this change as well in that I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, writers were given the opportunity to build a career. They weren't expected to kind of hit it out the park straight with their first novel. And it was okay for the first novel to kind of be successful and for a writer to slowly build up a readership and an audience. But it's my understanding now that editors are getting a lot more pressure on them in terms of sales and so that kind of filters down to the writers. And so many writers get to publish a first novel, but they don't get to publish a second novel. And if they publish a second novel that isn't wildly successful, it makes the third novel that much harder. Is, is that an accurate assessment? And is there anything as writers that we can do to kind of counteract that?
3: Um, yes, it's accurate. And yes, there are some things you can do. The other thing is that it just isn't cool. It is a really, it's just a really shitty part of the of the whole publishing process, honestly. Um, which leads me to the second thing, which is this culture of overpaying in a flurry of competition. That's sort of the other side of this, that authors hear about this and it's, oh gosh, that would be my dream come true to have this heated auction and everybody is talking about my book and everybody is, and a a debut that goes for a million dollars and it's immediately it's in 20 countries. Sure. That happens. And sometimes it works. And sometimes it really backfires because it's really hard to get a raise when you come out of college and are offered a CEO position. Um, It's really hard to go somewhere from there. Um, And so I think having realistic expectations about what an advance should look like for a debut and realizing that those stories are the outliers. Those stories are the exceptions and not the rule. And that it is a lot easier for a publishing house to continue to make a bet on an author that they love, whose work they love, that they think over time can work if they didn't spend their entire budget on a debut that still performed solidly but never could have lived up to the expectation either financially or commercially or critically. So I think that that's something that all authors want to be paid fairly and they should be paid fairly. I would argue that as tempting as it is to want to be overpaid for something, that there is um, a danger to it.
2: Definitely. If you're not earning out your, you know, your advance in terms of royalties, then you're not considered a, a good bet. So so that's That's great advice and and it's something that I'm going to want to discuss with agents later on the podcast because so many agents especially are pushing for huge advances um, when it may not actually be in the author's best interest to be pushing for that huge advance. So Kerry, you're now currently Executive Editor and Senior Director at Audible. Tell us about that and tell us about some projects that you're super excited about.
3: It's been a really fun transition after working in one space for a couple of decades. It's really exciting to be able to play around in a different medium, to play around in a different format, to have the definitions of success be different, to have my creative juices flowing in different directions and things like that. So that's been really fun. I joined about a year and a half ago and it took a little while for my first projects to come out. If this were book publishing, it would have been fast. In audio, the speed to market is a lot quicker for obvious reasons. It's all digital. It's, and it's just the gestation process in-house as opposed to what we've been talking about here is, is a little different. So a year and a half is a little on the longer side, but I also was familiarizing myself with how to make something in audio, whereas I, I had a lot of apprenticeship in print. So I just had two new projects come out. One of them is called Letters from Camp, and it is a scripted family series so from for kids and their parents to listen together show about that takes place at a summer camp and it's wrapped up in a mystery and it's extremely funny it's jamie lee curtis show jamie also stars as the director her co-star the primary narrator of the show is a young woman named Sunny Sandler, and she's really a girl. She's 11. (laughs) I'm calling her a young woman because it's shocking to me that she's 11. She's done such an incredible job with this show. And she plays our main character, Mookie, and then there's a star-studded cast, Edie Patterson and Kirby Howell-Baptiste and Jake Gyllenhaal, along with a slew of professional voiceover actors and actresses a dozen people are in this cast and we did the whole entire show every single person from home the show is getting a huge reception we did it because it has heart it is hilarious and the mystery is great but the story itself is wonderful jamie worked with a writer whose name is boko haft who is an extraordinary talent who did a really incredible job with the script. We heard from a family who was camping out in their backyard and listening to letters from camp at night before their kids go to bed. So that's exactly what we were hoping for. The second thing is a audible original called Thicker Than Water by Tyler Schultz, who was the Theranos whistleblower. Theranos was the big scam that was covered in John Kerry Rue's book, Bad Blood. And Tyler's story is sort of the untold story. And Tyler's story is not just dramatic for the corporate side it is a extremely riveting, thrilling, terrifying roller coaster family drama, and his story is incredible.
2: Are you going out and sourcing these stories? Are you approaching people or is it kind of like publishing where you're having agents approach you and pitch manuscripts to you or ideas to you?
3: It's a little bit of both. Those two were pitched by agents or managers. Um, and then I have a couple of short stories that are coming out that were also pitched by agents. One of them is by your friend and mine, Courtney Maum. She wrote a short story about a couple divorcing during COVID. And the she wrote it very specifically for audio. This It's a razor sharp, witty concept. And the execution is every bit as much so. And it is told from the point of view of the husband and the wife through the custody paperwork of their children. And clearly, Courtney was paying attention to how it would play in audio, you know, with the two voices and through the paperwork. And she threw in some very dramatic characters here and there that we ended up casting with different voiceover actors. So it was a ton of fun to do. The audio book space is a huge market for authors And it's becoming increasingly more so. And on Audible, of course, we have all of those audiobooks. So if I can do something fun with an author that is different than what they're doing in the book space and be able to link the listenership with the readership, then that's great. Because it just makes each of those segments bigger and it allows them to broaden their fan base.
2: Thank you so much for taking time out for us today, Kerry. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.
0: Here's the thing ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlowaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone.
1: This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is
0: Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As Nucon gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15, that's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaterscom slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8pm via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is